All right, let's get that. Let's let's get on things because this is one of those days that, uh, yeah, I basically I need to get us out on time, uh, and you don't even know what on time is, and it's just one of these messages. It, it's the worst because we uh, I coach my daughter's soccer team. This is our last Sunday game, so there's a few Sunday one o'clocks where it's just like amen and then run to get to the field early because I make it a point to get early. But it's always these weeks where I get a text and I'm like, oh, there's just so much, so much for us to look at. And um, so I might just, uh, this is the worst idea ever, but kind of just try to just distance myself from my notes a little bit just to get here, which is always worse because Susan's like, no, that never works well. Let's see how it works right here. This is the thing that I was thinking is that how, if you had the chance to describe where you are in your life right now, how you would describe it, I really believe there's only three ways in which you describe your life, right? It's on the up. Things are going well, and you're optimistic about what's coming your way. Maybe you think that things are actually on the way down. Maybe you're in a point where you're just very distracted, you're, you're, you're disappointed, you're frustrated, maybe you're mildly depressed, you have something where you don't think life is going as well as it ought to be. Or there's some of you who are like, eh, I'm there. It's happening. I don't know if there's an uptick or a downtick ahead, but right now I'm just in this space. I, I think there's probably that categorization is accurate to where it is. Now, the reason that we look at this continually is I believe that oftentimes as we reflect about ourselves, we try to determine where we are in our life path. Have you asked yourself that recently? Like, what's your life path? What's your trajectory? How are things going? Is it working for you? Is it not working? I think that as we are uh, humans being raised by other humans in a human society, that we tend to think that the natural progression how life ought to have been is that in my past, things weren't quite as good as they were now. In my present, though, things are pretty good, but that pales in comparison to where I am heading in the future. I mean, don't we usually buy into this? It's kind of this trajectory of... Uh, 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 of I'm, I'm growing, I'm learning. Maybe you grew up in a context where it was like, hey, if you just do X, Y, and Z, you'll grow up to become a well-rounded adult, and then someday you'll be able to retire and live the life of your dreams. Isn't that sometimes how we view life, is that it ought to, to, to track along this trajectory. Maybe this is your trajectory, or maybe you're like some people who have had previous experiences from which you are recovering. But still in that trajectory, if you're looking at past where, you know, maybe things were okay, but I had my dark downturn, but now I'm trying to move to the future, that my life is being redeemed. And I will tell you that within religious circles, these are very popular stories. In, in more charismatic churches, sometimes it's called the testimony. And the testimony always was, is like, I was someplace here, and then I fell to my lowest low, but God raised me up, and now I'm better than ever. That's not a bad trajectory if you have baggage from your past. Now, I think the trajectory none of us want is the trajectory of the child star. And I don't really want to name names, because I've tried to just stop doing that, even among celebrities that I might never meet. But sometimes I feel like there's some easy targets, Corey Feldman, looking at you, that they had, and I did name names because I'm a horrible person, but I will shall not name any other names. And some of you are like, Corey who? And you're going to have to look back in the 80s. It's this thing. But that 
at the beginning of their life, things were amazing, but then the rest of their life was a downside. And the reason I say this for child stars, if you think about it, they're in a place where they have all their wishes and wants provided to them, and then if that job ends, they realize, I'm not as cute as I was when I was a kid, and the rest of it's downhill. Or if you will, maybe these were some of the people you went to high school with that, that were the people who were on top of the world. And even today, you look at their Facebooks and you're wondering why they're living in the past because it isn't what it once was. How do you look at your life and its trajectory? We're in the midst of a series right now in the book of Colossians, Why Jesus Wins. In the book of Colossians, written by the Apostle Paul, it's a letter in the New Testament, 2,000 years old, Paul was a follower of Jesus, and some people claim that Paul is probably one of the most influential human beings who has ever lived because much of what Christianity today is derived from Paul. And in this letter to a small church in modern-day Turkey, what we see is Paul trying to make a case for why Jesus wins. And we explored that just even in the beginning next week, and over the next few weeks, we'll continue to explore that as we go through this book. But today, we want to hone in basically on why Jesus wins and its impact on our life trajectory. So Brooklyn's done many things this morning already. She saved us from Slide Again 2017. She didn't play the keyboards, which means I had to play, which was the worst and she is also going to read the Word of God for us this morning, and we thank you for that, lady. If you will, and in the Blue Bible, do we have a page on that? Someone? 833 in your Blue Bible. Page screen on your tablet or smart device. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18, please. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the, among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. As we figure out what Jesus means to our lives, we're going to do this morning an examination of different characteristics of Christ that Paul reveals here. We're going to look at four different characteristics within the verses before us. And the first one that Paul describes here is that Christ was supreme, that he was above all, over all, in all, through all. Okay, so just to get through basic Christian theology here that many of us don't like to think of, especially those of us who have been in church for a very long time, and we just assume, but yeah, Christ was just awesome because he was awesome, understand why he was supreme and awesome, and that comes back to the theological concept of the Trinity. And I will not unpack all of this this morning, and even if I had the wherewithal to have time to unpack it, I don't know if I have the, the mental energy to unpack it, because theologians have been arguing about the Trinity for thousands of years. It's this concept that there is but one God, as it says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, we talked about this text a few years ago. This is a, a, a cornerstone within Jewish belief that there was just one God as opposed to 
the polytheism of the time, that the, the belief that there were many gods, is that no, there was one God, and in the one God, it exists at three, at three different entities, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We sing worship songs that refer to this all the time. This is an important concept, and, and for, again, theologians, the issue is there's a paradox in there, right? Because something can't be both three and one at the same time. The short theological answer is it's God, he gets to do whatever the hell he wants. Okay? So as you start to work this out, I can go into it in a little bit more depth if we want to take hours to do this. The idea that the Trinity is God and one and three is difficult to understand. The emphasis of much of the New Testament is that in Jesus Christ and the understanding that the Son actually was God the Father. And that's what Paul wants to say right here. Because notice how Paul is talking about the, uh, all these things that we would describe who God is and what he is. Paul describes him as both the creator, the one who made all things. So we always think of God in his form of creation, right? We, we are in his role of creation. We think of God making everything in the universe. But often we stop there. And we forget that God is also sustainer. And Paul talks about this. The idea that all things, in verse 17, are held together through God. So recognize this. There was a popular belief coming out of the Enlightenment called theism. Or, or excuse me, deism. The idea that God made all creation and then just said, you guys take care of it yourself. I'm going to take a nap and I'll come back eventually. Like, this was a popular belief. I think it still exists though within this because we view God as if he's far off. It's like God is divorced from the day to day, but he's not because God is also sustainer. Not only did he make all of this, but he keeps it all together. My go-to example is always gravity. We neglect the role of God in our life every day with the existence of gravity. Maybe you are aware of it when you're in a high place, standing precipitously by the edge, and you're like, falling would be bad. But do you ever just appreciate the role of God in the idea that I'm not floating up into space, nor is my automobile or, or my animal and my cat or dog, right? Like, God is holding all of this together. Not only did he make it, he sustains it. And friends, Jesus, being God, has that same ability. So when we glance then at the, 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 the diversity of creation and the universe... And if you ever want to watch a Nova special or something on PBS that talks about the breadth of what exists, the idea that we have found absolutely no end to the cosmos, you start to recognize that God's ability to create what, what was just, uh, just beyond understanding. And then we localize that and we think of the concept of mountains and valleys and and the vistas that exist in this world, all created by God. And then within the sustenance of that, we focus in on seasons and weather. We see the creation of God. We recognize that there's something more to this. And what Paul is saying is understand is that even if you start with this belief, you might not know where it ends. If you start with the belief that there is a creator, there is a God, that we're here for a purpose, that we exist because something made all of this, recognize that it actually existed in the person of Jesus Christ. So again, when we come to grips as to why Jesus wins, we must grapple with this idea that he wasn't just a brave teacher who said some wonderful things and pieces of wisdom that we can hold on to today. Christian belief, friends, is that all of this lived on earth 
2,000 years ago in the person of Jesus. And when you see that as it is, then everything changes because Jesus should change our perspective. Even from this text right here, I want to highlight just one thing that, that, that we obsess with right now, but I would be, what would I want to say? I would guarantee that in your conversations day to day right now in the workplace or with your friends or with family is it all comes back usually to politics somehow right now. There's so much that is divisive right now. All we're talking about is what happens right here. Do you see what Paul writes here in verses 15 through 18? The idea in verse 16 that thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, all these networks, the politics, the structures that exist, not just in the city of Cincinnati or the state of Ohio or these United States, but all throughout the world, and not just within the political realm, but within the business realm. All of this exists because Jesus allows it to exist. It's him. Okay, and, and last week, we, we made the apex of the introduction of the book about these verses in, in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13, that what God has done is rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the Son he loved, recognize that the kingdom of God supersedes all of that. Okay, so when we look at creation, it should bring to reality this idea that all this junk that we worry and obsess about today, as much as we're looking at the political climate of certain states or regions or entities, recognize that it all sits under the umbrella of who God is and all that he's created and who Jesus is. So he is bigger than all of this. So if we can sometimes recalibrate, when we get so angry and frustrated, maybe to stop and realize, hey, at the end of the day, I serve a God who is supreme. I serve Jesus. Brings it into reality. Will you do me a favor, Brooklyn? We're going to move on to the next verses here. And we are going to read verses 19 and 20. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Second aspect of Jesus' character is that he is the reconciler. That's not something that you'll see on a business card, and maybe it's not even a phrase that we use. One who is a reconciler. Recognize that that comes from what Paul writes here, and he's going to say it in the next verse here. To reconcile is to cause harmony between forces at conflict. Jesus is sometimes known as the Prince of Peace, and that's what he does. He reconciles. He brings together warring factions and uses them for his glory. He has come to make peace. Verse 20 tells us how Jesus makes peace in heaven on earth, and he does it to, through two surprising things, through blood and through cross. Again, that's Christianese for those of us who have been in church the longest time, right? Because that's the quintessential story of Jesus' existence is the cross, right? That Jesus lived, he died on a cross, but he rose from the dead. But recognize that the way that Jesus has reconciled was by using those two things, which again is something that goes countercultural to everything that the people of those days believed. Recognize this, it's today we see the value of blood, right? Blood is interesting and that might be the weirdest phrase that you've heard in a while. Blood is fascinating when you understand our need to have blood for existence. But the ancients, all they understood is that if you bled too much, you died. And therefore, there was this taboo about blood. To bleed showed that your humanity was draining from you. Blood then became a sign of weakness. 
but recognize that through Christian theology throughout the New Testament and carrying out through the sacrifices of the Old Testament, it's just blood, 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 blood. This is one of the reasons that Christians were viewed so peculiarly by everybody else in the era because of their emphasis on blood. But recognize what does Jesus do? He takes that blood, losing it, something that was negative, and he redeems it. Similarly, the cross. And again, we hear this all the time, and we don't know, need to go into depth, depth of it right now. But the cross today, we, we see it as something we want to tattoo. It's almost beautiful iconography that we see. And maybe you have crosses hanging in your homes, or it's inked on you, or, or, or you, know, you just view it as this symbol that sits on top of a church building that's supposed to be in peace. But friends, the cross was an instrument of death. And not just an instrument, but the most horrific, insulting instrument of death that the reigning powers of the day had at their disposal. You watch the movie Spartacus that tries to relate that, the idea that, they were the, you know, that the Romans would line the streets with crucified bodies. They did that, friends, because it showed ultimate disrespect of a human body, and it was the most humiliating way to die. The person who was killed was often hung naked on a cross. So it was the most insulting thing. So Jesus, through blood, through something that at that time had been considered vile, and through cross, something that was just as equally reprehensible, uses those two instruments to bring reconciliation to the world. Again, it's paradoxical. It makes no sense, but that's how he works. Theologian Nijay Gupta wrote it as this. And it's, I'm going to try to read slowly because it's, it's deep, it's rich, it's powerful. Is that Nijay says, it took a human body a member of the old age under sin and death, to confront death once and for all, but with a twist, that this body would have the fullness of God, the mortal as good as dead body of old Adam, imbued with the resurrection life and powers of the creator God. Again, what this is, is the paradoxical nature, nature of who Jesus was and what he did. And what does he do? He reconciles. Jesus was the one who reconciles all things, but most importantly, through his life, death, resurrection. He joins the power, or the powerful deity, God, creator, sustainer, all things. He is able to reconcile that with the powerless, with the powerless, the body. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that as Brooklyn reads verses 21 and 22. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free of accusation. So the third characteristic is that Jesus was incarnate. And understand your etymology right there. Carne, you know, which some of you like your carne asada. Understand that it's just the, that word for meat. That it's the same etymological root for flesh, right? That Jesus was God incarnate. That Jesus was the creator of all things. The sustainer of all things come down to earth in human body. And again, this is very interesting when you look at the prevailing ideas in Paul's times. 
the body was not something that was very highly idolized in all cultures. Some actually did, and we see it in the prevailing, prevailing Greco-Roman sculptures of the time. But the issue with the human body 2,000 years ago is that mortality rates were not nearly what they were today. If you made it to your 40s, you would live an old age. If you made it to 60s, then God was really with you. If you pushed that, then, then it was absolutely miraculous. So recognize this, because the body was so feeble in that time, without any of the medicine that we have today, it was something that was viewed as less than. In fact, there was a prevailing the philosophy at the time called Gnosticism, spelled with a G, G-N-Gnosticism, that Gnosticism believed that the body wasn't just feeble, that it was evil, and that the only way to become truly spiritual was to divorce yourself from the body. Now see that in relation to how we live today, friends, because we idolize the body in many different ways, not just sexually, but even that the way we treat it. You know, it's the interesting thing that you see today more than ever is that people are more health conscious than, I, at least in our country, that they've ever been. They need to be that because of all the crap that we eat that is now at our disposal. And we went through this generation to where we were healthy, but now that we have all of this, we are trying to figure out how to sustain the body. It's a joke that I say. You guys got to, I don't know if, you know, you get out beyond echo, but, you know, go look at some of the best preachers online right now. Not only are they good communicators, but these dudes are buff. Like, it's the flipping gun show. Like, I, I really believe it's like, you know, get up in the morning sermon prep and then hit the gym for three hours because they're wearing tighter shirts and their biceps are bulging out. And I just laugh at this because back then it used to be like your, your preacher had to have like a, some, uh, you know, something hanging over his belt because it was like, you know, the law of the Lord or something like that. I, even that point just shows right there is how much we today idolize the body to the extent that even at the end of life then, people will pay much, much of their life savings to be cryogenically frozen for the chance that someday their body can see new life. So recognize this. We might not get the fullness of the body because we live in a point to where people are living longer and longer and we're seeing all these things, but in this day, the idea that God came and lived in flesh was not viewed by the masses as something that was great. It was viewed as something peculiar and to be ostracized. But that's the very form that God chose to come into earth. Not as like, not angelic, not with light and power, but in the form of a human being. Brooklyn, read verse 23 so we can see this last aspect of the humanity of Christ. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Okay, I'm going to have to dig back a little here, pull back some layers so that we can see this final characteristic. But recognize this. That Paul ends up by saying, look, this is all about the gospel. The gospel. What's the gospel? It's a churchy word. Understand that it's old English. You know, it, come, it basically just comes from, it, it, it means good news, right? Good news. So that's why today we've even said, you know, I preach the gospel of veganism or something. Like we just understand is that gospel doesn't necessarily have to be Christian, but within Paul's writing, it all comes down to the good news about Jesus. That what he says is everything comes down to the gospel. Okay? Notice this at the end of this too. He says that the gospel of which Paul, I, Paul, have become a servant. Have become a servant. 
Okay, now, now Paul, in trying to tell the people that he preached to how to live, did something very interesting. Because many of us are, 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 would subscribe to this idea that we need to be like Jesus. But what Paul actually says, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11, uh, and actually that's chapter 11, verse 1. I missed my colon right there. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. So this is what's interesting that Paul did. Is Paul said, listen, be like me because I'm trying to be like Jesus. Those are bold words, right? Some of you are like, Paul's a jerk, right? Because he's trying to say, I'm somehow superior to all these other humans. But I think what Paul is trying to do is raise the bar for himself to say, look, I need to be Jesus incarnate, right? I need to be Jesus in the flesh so that when people see me, they see Jesus. So how then did Paul see himself? Here in verse 23, Paul sees himself as a servant of the gospel and a truer word translated there would be a slave to the gospel. Now slavery has so much connotation for us historically, right? We, we, we saw this historically where, where, where people were, were taken from different lands to come in and to live Underneath someone with no freedoms. We see in the sex trade today that slavery even still exists. Where somebody's freedoms are sacrificed because they are beholden to another individual. In Paul's day, there was both hardened slavery of that, of that no escape loss of freedom. And then there was more of a, con, a congenial servanthood, if you will, where you still lived under a master, but you had relative freedom. Regardless of what that is, or how it looks then and today, the idea of living as a servant or slave under somebody lessens their humanity. Can we agree to that? So that living there, even if you are in the most idealized servant slavery situation, still means that you lack the full freedom. But Paul says, that's who I am. Why does Paul say, I'm a slave to the gospel? Because the good news involves Jesus living as a slave. If you've been here long enough with us at any other time, you realize this is still my favorite text of scripture in all of the Bible, and that's a lot, but it comes down to succinctly describe what Jesus did for me and you. And Paul wrote this as well, when he says, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or used to his own advantage. He made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant slave. Jesus, coming to earth, came to be a slave. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, and therefore God exalts him to the highest place, gives him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So recognize this. What is this final characteristic of who Jesus is? It's the idea that our Lord God, Jesus Christ, is humble. Jesus, friends, was humble. And that makes all the difference. Because as Paul writes, he was and is God, 
but he did it with an asterisk that he did not use the power at his disposal. When Jesus walks on earth, he could look up to the stars and be like, I made that. When Jesus was walking through the hill country of Palestine, he could look to, to the hills and the streams and the rivers and recognize that I made that. When he's in the midst of the Sea of Galilee and the rains are coming down and his disciples are freaking out, he's just like, it's all cool. I made that. He had all of this at his disposal. Ergo, we're like, that's why we worship Jesus, right? He was like this, he was Gandalf or, you know, Dumbledore to the extreme. He had everything in him. He was God. That's why we do it. He had all of this power. But recognize this, is that the beauty of who Jesus was is he had all of that power. And yet, if you see how he used that power, I'm going to come back to this one. I'm changing my, my things. What, what happens with Jesus' power? He's born as a human. How'd that power work out for him? He still had diaper rash. He was a baby. He couldn't articulate his words even though he created babies. He didn't use his power. But you might be like, oh, but when he lived, he did all these miraculous things. Friends, even though he went around giving blind people sight, allowing deaf to hear, raising a few people from the dead, his use of power was so minuscule when in comparison to everything that he ever did. He limited his power, friends, and that, that is truly remarkable. So when I'm looking at the life trajectory of Jesus, right? He's born, it's good, he's got some great childhood memories. He did that thing at age 12 where he went to the temple and showed up all the smart people. He had this life where he went around, he said a bunch of brilliant things that worked out really well for him. But then at the end, it really turned out really, really horrible. As much, maybe this is why, Paul, instead of saying, be like Jesus, maybe he's just like, I don't think you'd want that in your life, okay? But what's the key? The key is, is that as much as Jesus' death ended up being one of the worst deaths anybody could ever experience, he changes the chart. He changes the graph, right? So when you and I are looking at our lives and trying to determine how things are going, the problem is, is that we're playing within the confines of the data at our disposal, which is a date, a dash, and a date, right? We're sometimes so distraught at what God is doing in my life right now when we don't see the bigger picture of what Jesus permits us. And what that is, is a chance to obliterate the chart and understand that it doesn't end at death. It doesn't end at death. That's what he provides to us. Why does Jesus win then? And let me come back right here. Um, we win. Jesus wins because think about this. How did he navigate his life? He didn't show his power by the power that he had at his disposal. In fact, he did the opposite. What does he become? He became a slave to humanity and death. Jesus allows humility, his humbleness, to be the true expression of his power. I and mean, that's, that's what the gospel is. 
So as much as we want this empowering message, like, oh, Jesus has made me more than conquerors, right? There's all this stuff. There's even, there is inspirational stuff for us to recognize, right? Even though things are bad, these are just light momentary troubles that when compared to our eternal glory, it, it's not even going to be in comparison. But recognize, Jesus wins because he didn't need to use the power at his disposal. Jesus lived in humility. So what are you and I called to do? We're called to live in humility. First Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Friends, the most difficult character trait that I think I've had to develop is humility. And I hope I'm not alone in this. Like, I don't want this to be our counseling session. But it's difficult. And by the way, I, I do think this is intertwined with who we are because raising a, a small human will show that to you, right? Because every kid wants to impress their parent, right? They want to show what they did. And we, we, we kind of encourage that too, right? By putting the drawings on the, on the um, refrigerator or by posting the picture on social media. Like, there's just this need to impress. And when we do that, though, the, the, the thing is, is that why are we trying to be impressive? Because many times we're trying to find our self-worth and value in our accomplishments in our CV, in our LinkedIn profile. Isn't it true? Maybe that's what you're struggling with right now. But regardless where we are in life, whether it's going up or down, or you're just pausing to the next episode, right? Understand that we need to live like Jesus and humble ourselves. We need to, we need to be humble. There's no greater expression, the story of Jesus, there's no greater expression than the cross, Right? As we take communion every week, what we are doing is we are digesting the humility of Christ. By eating and drinking and remembering the cross, we're not just remembering this horrific event. We're, we're, we're remembering that God of the universe came to earth and became a slave for our salvation. He gave it all for us. There's no better way I can think of right now to end our time of worship by communing. I'm going to pray. We're going to pass around these trays. We're going to give us an opportunity to remember the cross. Friends, think about all Jesus gave up, all he gave up so that you could be with him for eternity. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the words of your Apostle Paul. I thank you for the chance to recognize how truly amazing your son Jesus was leaving his throne in heaven to come to earth, but not just that, Father, not just to be known as a dynamic teacher, but as a sacrifice for our sin. And that's why we view ourselves as not worthy. But in this time of remembrance, help us to see how transformational that power was. Power and humility. Remind us now, O oh Lord, in his name. Amen.